you know, in the end, if you ask a few times, eventually you might actually get a response. You have to forget that you're embarrassed about how pathetic you seem by nagging someone, right? Which is hard because your inner voice is telling you how pathetic you are the whole time. You feel like you feel like you're fancying someone, and it's unrequited love. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. How do the most inspiring entrepreneurs overcome their struggles and vulnerabilities and failures and find success? That's the question Dan Murray Serta, our guest today, set out to answer when launching his podcast, Secret Leaders. The Secret Leaders podcast is the number one business podcast in the UK. Dan has featured some of the world's top entrepreneurs, from the founder of Bulb, Slack, Deliveroo, Planet Organic, Calm, LastMinute.com, and Joe Malone, to name but a few. He's since run five seasons, attracted podcast sponsorship, ran live events, and been featured in places like The Independent and Cosmopolitan. He still runs Secret Leaders as a side project, alongside his new business Heights, a brain health and mental wellness company that offers a smart supplement for the brain. We talk about the right way to network, how to find your dream guests, why podcasts can be a form of self-improvement, and some really useful insights on how to launch, promote, and grow your podcast. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. I have listened to your podcast many times. I've even been to your live show. Oh, have you? Yeah. Which one did you come to? I went to the one with Joe Malone. Oh, right. And Justine Roberts. They, they were great. They were. I remember I asked Justine Roberts a question and the answer has actually stayed with ever since. Really? That's interesting. What was it? I said, there's a lot of people trying to build communities at the moment. What do you think separates ones that are successful and useful to people um, and ones which are just kind of vanity communities? I said something like that. And she said, uh, what makes a great community is uh, finding something that that community cares about and evangelizing for it, Mm. campaigning for it. That makes sense. Yeah. And I thought it was was a really sort of nice thing to say. I think it's totally true. That's the whole point of bringing kind of communities together in the first place. I'm keen to kind of understand your background. You've done so much stuff. It's hard to know which bits are side projects, which bits are full time. This is my trying to think. I mean, it's hard to say. So I have three companies that I run now. But you know, that's a really grandiose, arrogant sounding statement. Because in reality, I have one company that I run now, which is Heights. And I'm full time on that. And it really does take all my time. But I started a podcast, Secret Leaders, as a side gig four years ago. I started both Secret Leaders and Founders as nonprofits. It's just, it's literally a personal psychological thing. I need to know where my money's coming from. 
you know, if I thought I was going to get more money from secret leaders, it might be really hard for me psychologically to say, well, I need to focus more on heights, which is where all my eggs are, because secret leaders might represent a much better financial opportunity for me. And that's going to really skew my, uh, my judgment on where my passion really lies. So I was really careful with, with secret leaders that I set it up on purpose um, without any desire for financial reward and literally for me to enjoy it. The other thing is, of course, like things that need to make us money are stressful. Of course they are. It, it, everything is, you know, I even have to obviously get an accountant on secret leaders and stuff and it's just miserable. But I'm like, well, at least there's not more money in it where it would just be even more miserable to figure it all out. All I really want to do is interview some of the most interesting and inspiring people in the world and, um, and grow the audience. But if my desire was to make it a business, you know, to potentially sell to Spotify or whatever, I could never do that as a side project justifiably at the same time as running Heights. I just, and it would be so unfair to my business partner at Heights, to my employees, all that stuff. So I think it's really important to understand from the offset what your real intention is. I think if you start just saying you're seeking learning or you're seeking to meet interesting people or you're I don't know, you're seeking to do something that you didn't think you could do before because it's kind of a confidence building thing. Yeah, you just make decisions differently. But I think it's difficult because I think a lot of side projects have money involved to some degree. I'm sure you found this with Secret Leaders where you need money to fund it, you need money to sustain it. And I and I imagine, I don't know whether you made a conscious choice, at what point, I guess, you made a conscious choice to make it a non-profit versus a for-profit. Straight up, like in advance, and the main reason for that, there's, lo- there's loads of things to say here, but my friend Rich that I do it with, so he's the producer, I'm the host. That's kind of how we manage our responsibilities. By luck, I, we have very different interests. So he actually enjoys editing and producing, doesn't like research and doesn't like uh, scripting and interviewing. And I like all those things. So it just really easily works like that. Um, he was also, which which I think helps, like if you're going to find a partner, you, you guys have to be aligned he has a full-time business as well. He runs a startup. He has a team. He has employees. We're so on the same wavelength that Secret Leaders is neither of our priority. By not needing to take a salary from Secret Leaders, which has been fortunate, we've got quite a lot of money in the bank that, because we've never paid ourselves a single penny from it, quite a lot of money in the bank from advertising because it's grown and everything else that we can just spend on advertising, growing audience. It's not just potluck that we became the number one business podcast in the UK. It took time, energy, trying different advertising channels, but also budget. And you know, if you have to pay a full time salary out of the money you're getting in for advertising, there's nothing left to grow it. But for us as a side project, we were like, we don't need money from it because we've got our full time professions. So therefore, all the money in goes out on production and marketing. So it's not like it's an altruistic nonprofit. I don't want people to misunderstand nonprofit and think charity. We're not actually doing any good in the world. We're just spending more money on, on, on spreading the word. So what was your incentive when you started it? I was already doing lots of interviews in small audiences, so 20 to 30 people with really great entrepreneurs. I interviewed the founder of Wonga. I interviewed the founder of Zoopla. So Alex Chesterman, Errol Damlin, uh, really interesting interviews, but for like 20, 30 entrepreneurs talking about their journey, their failures, all this kind of stuff. It was when I interviewed the founder of Photobox, he was so raw and honest about everything that had happened and gone wrong and everything else. 
But I was like, you know, it is a real shame there's only 20 or 30 of us here. And I said the same to Errol and, and Alex, but both of them were like, no, we only agreed to do this because it's private, which is totally reasonable. But with Graham, he was like, oh, I'm, which is Photobox, he was like, yeah, I mean, I'd be very happy to share this. And so that's what gave me the idea that, you know what, like for entrepreneurs that are willing to be vulnerable and share their lessons, what they learned from failure, how horrific it is. You know, the great thing about the Photobox story is, you know, sell for 400 million pounds after 17 years. And it's like really, really easy as an entrepreneur to be like, oh, it's been three or four years. And I'm not rich yet. It's like, no, hear more of the stories like that. And you realize what it actually takes. You know, that was really the starting point was I was doing these these amazing interviews and I wanted more people to hear it because it seemed selfish and really quite elite. So with those, you, you're starting actually on already on quite a elevated place, I think, which other people might not have themselves, which is you're already running kind of talks with, you know, 20, 30 attendees. You're already, you've already got access to these amazing entrepreneurs. Can we go back maybe a year or two years or whenever all of that started? Because it sounds like that then was the kind of the inspiration behind it. Yeah, that's very fair. So I was running a startup called Grabble. So Grabble was my third company. And the idea behind Grabble was at the time sort of ASOS meets Pinterest slash we're not really sure, but something cool with a web crawler and other shit to do with shopping. In the end, after a year of being complete noobs, we pivoted to mobile as a last ditch attempt to save the company. And it, it went off really well. So we got nicknamed the Tinder of fashion. We became the number one shopping app in the UK. You know, it was just a really interesting and exciting time. We won lots of awards. And this was kind of how I was meeting those entrepreneurs. The reason I wanted to do interviews with them was literally because it had occurred to me, like the most common thing that we all say, obviously, is, you know, can I go grab a coffee with you and pick your brains? And it's like most people that want to pick your brains for a coffee haven't thought well about what they want to ask in advance. I, do, I did the same thing, by the way. And it's all a bit frustrating. There's only so many coffees you can take. There's only so many times you can repeat the same thing. So in the end, I was like, you know what, doing an event um, and, and having a why much more likely to get them. I'm not going to sit at coffee with like Errol Damlin from Wonga and ask him, you know, if he feels like the moral judgment of how he took people's money and did X, Y, and Z, you know, pour fucking coffee all over me. But in an interview setting, he might actually be open to it. Got really great feedback, including from him. Um, and it gave me some confidence to try and do it again. And so like all of these things are like little moments in your life where you have this idea. These little moments that sort of, you know, snowballed. I asked Alex, I asked, I asked Errol, they both said no, but Graham was like, yes. And you know who would be really good actually is, uh, is Nick, who I bought his company, Moonpig. So I was like, okay, great. And I reached out to Nick Jenkins and I have to say like Nick has been like an amazing, not mentor, but like genuinely friend, like most generous person. He was the first episode that we did on Secret Leaders. And over the years of meeting someone like that, you know, someone who'd been on Dragon's Den and is a bit, you know, intimidating, understandably, not one of my investors, not someone that I had a pre-existing relationship with. Uh, he's amazing. But it's that kind of thing, you know, you build up these like moments of rapport and moments of magic with people. And if you get on, um, a friendship is born, like even the most unlikely friendship is born. And these things kind of, they kind of snowball and they create other serendipitous moments. And I'm, I'm very big on serendipity. So if someone were listening and they're thinking, hmm, it'd be really nice to put something together with some speakers, I'd like to, you know, have a have a go at putting on some events or hosting a podcast, but they don't have a pre-existing network, um, yeah. you know, of that kind of level, which I think 
is a bigger network for than, than most people have. I imagine that there are principles that you've kind of learnt even within starting from maybe a different place. Um, what principles do you think there are that other people could adopt to to start to get you know interesting people and their guests to start to attract interesting speakers to the events that they're doing? I mean, the way that I've always thought about stuff, this doesn't sound really arrogant, but I know it to be true. Like if you asked anyone, um, like a positive trait of mine, like absolutely, I am like the living example of paying it forward. I've never, ever, ever asked someone to do something for me that I haven't done. I haven't gone out my way to try and help them with something first. I'm always asking people how I can help them. And I don't do it how a lot of people do, which is to just say it and not do it. I go like, really far out my way if I can to try and help that person and people don't forget that everyone could do with some help with something you just don't know what it is and not everyone asks you of course like of course of course however I found that to be the single greatest reason why I've been able to call in favors from people because people will five years later pop up out of nowhere and offer to do something really nice for me that I didn't even know I wanted or didn't know I needed. So when it comes to networking, what is, I think, the wrong way around to do it, but is the way that everyone approaches it, is basically being really tactical and not strategic. So for me, strategic networking is to be a really nice person and really go out of your way for everyone you possibly can because I believe in karma and I believe that that has always come back because I believe in those things. I'm also aware it's not that altruistic. Like at some point I know in the universe, it will be repaid to come back to me. I just don't know what the favor is that I want or when I want it. That's a, a fairly mercenary way to look at it. But if you believe in karma, then you can't pretend you don't know that that side isn't true of it as well. The tactical way that people network is I want to do an event, I want to do a podcast, I want to reach out to people, I want to do this. It's all like, I want, I want, I want, I want. And it's usually done in some panicked rush. There's so much urgency to this need. And that's all in your own head. It's not true. No one in the world is waiting for someone's next drop of content. It's really your own ego that's like demanding the pace that you're setting yourself. Even if you're able to get the guest at that point, the rapport isn't quite there, so the quality isn't quite as good. So people don't really necessarily come away with such a ma like a magical feeling. You know, it's interesting. You told me that you came to a Secret Leaders Live event. The one you came to was Joe Malone and Justine Roberts. I mean, how different are those two people? But two people who I'd spent time years in advance as well for both of them, figuring out like, are there any other ways that I can help them? Is there anything useful I can do to them? When I met them, I genuinely did the interview and then post the interview was trying to like do stuff that I thought was like value add for them or whatever. So you get a bit of a conversational sense of their personalities, which then means when I'm trying to put together an event and thinking who would be great together? I was like, oh, those two would be amazing together because they're so different and people might not expect that. These are kind of things that you can only really learn by listening to how people behave, by really spending the time. And it's, it's hard to rush those things. You don't get a sense of what someone's like in one meeting. But I imagine through these previous events and through, you know, maybe having some sort of friends in common, you have some kind of kind of social capital or some kind of common ground, maybe. Who's your first memory of a kind of unreasonable cold request that you went in with that wasn't from a pre-existing network that was something that was totally ambitious, but you somehow managed to pull it off? I'm struggling to think about who the first person was like that. But I, th I certainly know that, you know, Deliveroo Wilshire was really, really, really hard. 
Like he's super shy. He doesn't do it. He's super nice and was a great guest, actually. You know, I had no way in and it was difficult. Well, a good example of this series, actually, because I'm in conversation with him, the founder of House Party. You know, I'm like, of course, House Party would be amazing. I also, by the way, tried the founder of Zoom. I mean, it's just never going to happen. But again, Twitter is amazing for this stuff. Like, there's no guarantee that the person's going to respond to you. But I mean, you can just try a bunch of times, you know, whether you're famous or not, busy or not, you have the same uh, cognitive patterns as everyone else. So you do it once you're a stranger, they're not going to be interested. Maybe if you follow what they do, if you like a bunch of tweets that they do, not because you're a sycophant, because actually they're probably in your area. You know, in the end, if you ask a few times, eventually you might actually get a response. You have to forget that you're embarrassed about how pathetic you seem by nagging someone, right? Which is hard because your inner voice is telling you how pathetic you are the whole time. You feel like you feel like you're fancying someone and it's unrequited love. But you just got to get over it. It's, it's difficult at times, but that's just how it works. I've got Ray Dalio on my on my list. I don't reckon I'll ever get him, but I'm obsessed with principles. And I think he's just unbelievably interesting. And it would be a dream come true. It's good to have those kind of ideas of people you want to get. You know, back to your original question of how do people do it? So many people contact me, contact me on LinkedIn. I try and respond to everyone it's not easy but I try to respond to everyone and you know it's a highly effective platform for you know landing in someone's inbox getting their attention and as long as you're polite about nagging and not a dick like generally speaking people respond but I suppose it links to if you dm'd Ray Dalio saying hey I'd just love to grab a coffee he's like no way what you know, what do you what do you want? And, and why do you find me interesting? And I feel I sometimes feel with side projects, one of the reasons that I think so many people should do them is they actually evidence that you're interested in something, you mm-hmm. know, like, I remember ages ago, I was looking at this job, it was like this job application. And it was like, you need to have an interest in whatever it was. And it was something that I was like, really interested in. And I looked at my CV. And I was like, there is nothing on the CV, which is like, you know, all I all I can say is I read loads of articles about it, you know, and it was so frustrating. I think that's an amazing point. That's spot on. And you know what? It's it's funny. I wouldn't um I wouldn't say I have a big interest in podcasting. But I have an interest in interviewing people. I really enjoy that. And I have a deep interest in learning from other people. Podcasting is just my medium. And like the other thing is as well, I'm I'm a big I'm a big believer in growth mindset and overcoming overcoming challenges, neuroplasticity, creating the life I want for myself. And that comes from overcoming fears and like everyone I had a massive fear of my voice Uh, I don't like it and so podcasting seemed like a really sensible way of tackling that fear Um, I have a massive fear of you know funny enough admiration for influencers on Instagram you know there's people that look relatively pristine and someone else has taken their photo and stuff I'm like I literally is the worst and like talking to a camera and you know for heights we were doing a content series and I just interviewed Jay Shetty on Thursday. You know, great example of someone who's just like just straight up on camera the entire time. Ego must be out of control to be doing that in my mind, right? That's what I'm telling myself. But like, mostly that just comes from my own insecurities and fear. Like, I keep telling myself, like, video is that next frontier. But like, I don't mind having a video conversation with you like this whatsoever. It seems really natural to me and very comfortable. But me getting up and doing videos on camera to myself, I've tried, I've started, you look on my Instagram, 
feed, you'll see how many times I've started that and then just given up because I just can't handle the negative self-talk I get about what a dick I feel like. You know, you can use that idea of uh, of growth mindset and things you want to overcome and use a side project as your way of, of overcoming it because those things don't always come into your job. Was it intentional then, the medium of a podcast from a sort of self-development perspective? Yeah, totally. Totally, totally. And I wasn't bold enough to do video or I just would have done it at the time. But I was just like, there's too much to handle all at once. Like, let's start with this. I don't know if you found this with your first series, but one thing I found in these early episodes is just the sheer process of editing actually gives you this kind of weird layer of social awareness you're like wow oh totally I, in my you know because you can remember how you felt when you were saying something and then you listen back to it and it's not quite how you remember saying it and it's just really interesting you notice ticks that you have as well mm-hmm. and I think you get an increased self-awareness through doing something like that it's a kind of weird form of self-study oh absolutely and you know you've got to be bold really to listen to that kind of discomfort and um, my first series of Secret Leaders, I'm legitimately just a bad interviewer because I interrupt people that are giving me great answers and I say, oh, yes, um, mm, sure, mm, mm, all that crap. And doesn't need it. I just stay silent, but I don't. And now, four series in, 80 or 100 interviews, I guess, including the live ones, like under my belt, uh, which is, you know, really, if you think about it, it's only about 100 hours. It's not that much practice if you think about what practice really looks like in a lot of industries at least I know to shut up and listen to someone answer me. You know, it's a really great example of like how I'm rambling. Like you can tell I haven't been a guest much. I don't think you're rambling. Uh, but I'm used to, I'm definitely used to doing the interviewing. The best thing for me anyway on, on this is, you know, with all this practice in podcasting, it's given us a real great opportunity with Heights because uh, since lockdown started, using my confidence of knowing I know how to interview has enabled me to create a series for heights where I've been doing live interviews every Thursday night. And the guests I have on there are like my dream guests. I had Stephen Fry um, in our second week. I've got uh, Mo Gordat next week, who's just remarkable. Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, like all these like really, really, really great people. I don't feel as much like an imposter asking them because when you can say something as arrogant as, well, you know, I've got the number one business podcast. So, you know, it makes people feel like, okay, well, this guy knows how, he's going to know how to interview. So fucking not worried about that. I'd say the whole experience has been so enjoyable. It's such a great example of how a side project years later has added a facet to my company that wouldn't otherwise be there as like a natural skill that we have in-house. You know, we've doubled the size of our, our database in the last four weeks by hosting four talks. It took us a year and a half, no, a year, sorry, to get to four and a half thousand people on our weekly newsletter on a Sunday that I send on on, on the brain. And in the last four weeks, we've got to over 10,000. It just shows that, you know, that a lot of this practice and energy, whatever your side project is, can be applied to your main job years later, but not necessarily in a way you might expect. Totally. It's kind of removing the exercise from the intention. Totally. You can actually also talk yourself out of it if you're too yeah. intentional about it, because you can go, for example, you can go, oh, I'm looking to do this because I want to get 10,000 people on the newsletter. And then, you you know, next week you don't get 10,000 people. Yeah. You, you start to panic. Whereas if you're like, I want to just do this thing because I want to meet these interesting people and put some interesting conversations out there that mm-hmm. people need to hear. It takes all the pressure off and people feel that. 
you know, and then actually get closer to that goal that you had anyway. I mean, the only reason why I did live events uh, for Secret Leaders, which has been super interesting, the only reason was so I could learn how to have some stage presence and be put on the spot for live interviewing. That has been so much fun and so interesting. You know, we've ended up doing, I mean, obviously not now, but we were doing one every other month. As well as saying we haven't spent a penny on marketing of those events, and we got 200 people turning up to every single one. And the only reason I did it was just so I could practice, you know, get, get a little bit better every time, a little bit more comfortable. And this felt like a really good personal development strategy where I know that every two months I'm going to spend one night doing a live event over two or three years. That will be a really great practice of an extra skill that I might not have picked up in my primary job. So another one of my theories uh, with side projects is that people do them for usually one of two reasons, sometimes both. Um, one is just because of passion. They do them because they think this thing should exist. And then the other reason is that they want to learn skills. Do you think yours was both or do you think it was just more on the skills building side? Mine was definitely more on the skills building side. It's more about skill building and trying to break, break down barriers. It is asking for quite a lot from someone to ask them to go for a coffee with you for an hour. When I shared the article with you, the uh, the one that's like, you know, this is how I made a podcast. This is every link you need, every series, how much we charge from episode one all the way through to the end of series four. You know, the main reason I did that was for myself, because I get asked on LinkedIn way more about secret leaders than Heights. Um, but Heights is literally my my passion. I don't want to sit there for a coffee with someone and talk about podcasting, right? That's not time well spent for me. I share that article with them. I'm like, I believe that this is more useful than the coffee with me. You know, to me, it's like ultimate paying it forward. It's free. There's no email capture. I'm not asking for anything in return. I'm literally just trying to spread goodwill out there. And that just makes me feel great. You know, the flip side thing that I'm sure you'll know and lots of listeners will appreciate is way more common is someone wants to go for the coffee for your time to talk about the thing they'll never do. Um, now, that's literally on them. I'm not judging, but it's a bit annoying to spend an hour with lots of people that don't ever end up doing anything about it. So at least if they read that article and choose not to do it, then that was their own choice and time investment, but not mine as well. Because I think the most helpful thing that you can do really in paying it forward is find scalable ways of sharing information that is meaningful and practical. What do you think stops the people who you meet who don't go on to start those projects? To be honest with you, I don't, I don't know about side projects, but a lot of people that I meet, they want to talk about entrepreneurship. A lot of people are paid very well, even though there are lots of entrepreneurs that are ex-Googlers, etc. There are way more people that stay there and get accustomed to that lifestyle. So generally speaking, you know, on the basis that I live in London and most of these meetings I will have had are in London, which is one of the most, you know, expensive, wealthiest countries and cities in the world. Lots of people are paid super well. The incentive isn't aligned and the risk doesn't work out and it's just not worth it for them. They just talk a big game. I can't even begin to tell you how many people have just like had half hour, 45 minute conversations where all they're really trying to tell me is how much they earn at their bank and how hard it is to walk away. And people that I've got way more compassion for are people who uh, have families and have responsibilities 
those people, I think, are great for starting side projects. But in terms of risking going all in on startups, I'm always really cautious with these people because I'm always really honest. I am super, super, super fortunate. I went to a good school. I went to a good university. My parents were ba- my parents were working class, um, like proper East End working class, but they were fucking hard. And I was born in the middle class. When my company failed, I went to live with my mum because I couldn't afford rent. Uh, that's called a safety blanket. Actually, it's called a safety net, but you can call it a safety blanket if you want. Um, but it's called a safety net. And, um, you know, when you are single and you don't have responsibilities and you don't have kids and all the rest of it, you're in a really privileged position in your life where you can take great risks. And even then it's hard. I think that's one of the that's one of the reasons I love side projects so much is just because I think they're just accessible to not everyone. Uh, it totally depends on your time and energy. No, you're right. No, I love your thesis on side projects. Oh, I, I, you know, no, I love it. And you know, you're spot, you're spot on. Your insight is spot on. There isn't, you know, all of the things I just said are, are totally mitigated with a side project. Again, I think they're almost they're almost totally. I think about it quite a lot because you know, not everything, of course, is accessible to everybody for lots of different reasons. But I think they are more. They they are they allow anyone to have some element of entrepreneurialism, which I think, with traditional kind of career versus entrepreneurship entrepreneurship it's actually not great a lot of the time for lots of people and so it can be really fantastic and I think it's a great path so can being in full-time work but I think there's another third thing which is being in full-time work and doing something entrepreneurial for yourself but not wanting to be an entrepreneur and that's okay and I feel like there's this big movement of everyone wanting to be a founder or a boss or you know all these things it's like you can have entrepreneurship you can have creativity but it doesn't have to be your single sort of identity or definition I couldn't agree more. And also the one thing that everyone always misunderstands when they are looking for entrepreneurship, it's a lot of fucking paperwork. Yeah, it sounds glamorous, but actually there's just a ton of admin and paperwork, frankly, because if you're a good entrepreneur, you're really trying to enable other people to do the really interesting and difficult tasks in the business. And you're basically managing them and the vision and getting stuff out of the way for them to do their jobs really well. So it's not really the glamorous bits, frankly. With a creative project, you know, sometimes it's enough to just be creative and enjoy doing it, whatever that hustle is, without setting up some ridiculous, stressful uh, ecosystem around it. And that's difficult. Like, I have to say that is difficult. It's been, you know, like I said to you earlier, it is it is a problem with secret leaders, in a sense, because the demand was there. And so we started testing a second episode a week. It's it's really interesting. It's literally doubled our listenership. But the truth is, you know, a lot of that can feel quite stressful. And it's really hard, like when you take another level up with your side project. And for example, you do two episodes a week of something you were doing one week. It's so hard. You accidentally slip into the growth mindset again, where you're always trying to push yourself to do a bit more and a bit more. And a big a big challenge with side projects or main projects is remembering to be content with where things are. That's so How difficult. Do that? Don't ask me. I'm terrible <laughs> at it. I'm I'm very I'm full of gratitude and I'm I practice as many healthy mental health habits as I can. However, absolutely one of my failings is I'm very focused on growth mindset and I'm not very focused on contentment and I feel physically anxious and impatient and I get all of these symptoms if I feel like stuff isn't moving Mm. Um, and that's not very healthy 
I think one thing that I, I think helps, at least in theory, is setting goals, especially OKRs, because at least then in three months time, you look back and you say, I might feel restless and like I haven't achieved anything, but I've written this thing down on a piece of paper and I've done it. Do you do much goal setting? You know what, I'll be to- I will be very honest and say that the way that we've set targets at Secret Leaders is so stupidly absurd because obviously I, I use OKRs and set them in heights. Yet with Secret Leaders, literally our goal was we want to be the number one business podcast in the UK because we thought that that was like a stupid thing to say. So obviously, funny enough, at the point where we became it, we were both so shocked about it. I'm not even sure we've set ourselves a new goal. Because it's almost like we forgot, we like, we just still in that kind of, oh shit, we did that one. Oh, yeah, Europe, I guess, would be the next obvious thing. So we're just like, yeah, we want to be the number one business podcast in Europe. We get great guests. We set it up literally out of love. We do it for love. We enjoy every moment of it. It's not very stressful, broadly speaking. Somehow that stuff has resonated and works, found an audience and is growing. That's not a. That's not how I would ever set out to run a business. If I was running a business, you know, I'm not going to rely on the sweet, sweet spirit of serendipity to hopefully make sure that I'm not out on my ass. Let's go back then to Secret Leaders, just so anyone listening who wants to start a side project has a bit of a kind of background on where to start, because I think sometimes it can just feel really overwhelming. Start a podcast, you think, how do I edit it? How do I find equipment? You know, how do I find the people? So let's do a kind of quick summary i guess of some of the key things so first things first we've talked a bit about guests but in terms of promotion because i think that's another of the things where people they'll create a podcast and expect it to you know be picked up but i know that podcasts mm. particularly it's quite tricky uh, isn't it Very to tricky. Get found. did you find any things that particularly worked for you has it been a bit of a trial and error totally trial and error so you know, really briefly, we got to 25,000 downloads of our first series, which was 15 episodes. And we got there through asking everyone and their mum to to listen and share a lot, a lot, a lot. And by the way, it doesn't work if you share on Facebook and go, can everyone please share this? Like, just remember how you behave when you see stuff like that. One to many never works. You've got to put the effort in. So if you want 25,000 l- downloads, anyone, everyone sharing and all that stuff. Imagine that you're going to literally personally tailor a message over the series to 500 people minimum. That's time spent, but that's how you do it. So there's no budget. Uh, We use something called Simplecast, which enabled us just to upload it to all the different platforms. Again, it was four years ago, so there were way less podcasts out there than there are now. That's different as well. Picking a niche. Secret Leaders was clever because we were trying to pick people that didn't do much media. Uh, so they weren't you know we never said like let's get Richard Branson it's like well I mean I've heard Richard Branson a bunch of times it's really inspiring great story but I've heard it loads so we were trying to find people that you hadn't necessarily heard the stories but you'd always heard the companies so that really helped because people wanted to hear the stories of these people anyway because you've you've heard of Moonpig you haven't heard Nick's story and so it was like that kind of idea Um, so like finding your niche and why your audience would care about that niche was super useful and then to be totally honest as well, like we tried a bunch of different things with social media, but we gave up on it. Like literally gave up on social media with secret leaders because just too much time uh, for me. I just literally, like firstly, Rich, who is my partner on it, like hates social media. So it would all be on me. And I just don't have time. I'm just like, you know, we tried it for a couple of years. 
ultimately you have a couple of like you have a, a small twitter account a small instagram account we're like it just does us more damage than good and none of our listeners were coming from there anyway we were reaching out to industry like really niche again industry newsletters all my best advice is like you know the more niche you go with everything the more likely people are to respond what i did was i went to loads of entrepreneurship um teachers at universities it seemed perfect. Similarly, I use the same concept with heights. So for heights, for people like to start off with coming to our live events, sorry, live events are uh, live video on YouTube events at the moment. Same insight, which is uh, if you've studied neuroscience or psychology, you're interested in the brain. I know that much. So literally building an audience of those people on LinkedIn and then personally messaging them saying, this is who I'm interviewing this week, would you be interested? I'd say about 25% of those people sign up. It's putting the time in. Again, there's no quick fix and you've got to, you've got to have the drive energy and then thought process of who your audience is and how you'll find them. Were you using paid media at all? We didn't until, so we didn't have any sponsors the first series, so there was no money. First series, we did 15 episodes. We got to 25,000. I then got sponsors for the second season. I think it was about 10,000 pounds that I raised out of three different advertisers. We put that money all into, I don't know, three or four grand on production and four or five grand on advertising. But the advertising, I don't remember what we did, but I don't think it was, it was not effective. We did stuff like Facebook ads and social media ads, basically, which really genuinely didn't work. But we were continuing to grow and we had really good guests. The third series is where we started to explore better advertising opportunities. Again, we didn't nail it. We did some some budget on SEO and you know a site tidy up we hired a designer and started designing uh, the, uh, the creative to look really good and then the smart thing we did by the time we did series three was because I'd already started doing the live events then we started using live events as a reason to invite journalists so we would invite journalists and then offer them time with the entrepreneurs that were going to be there to discuss afterwards which they then wanted to do and then they would write about the event and the story and always mention secret leaders and then the fourth series, is that right? Yeah, we're on series five. The fourth series, the last series, uh, is when it really took off. And that's because we, which is so obvious, by the way, um, but we'd only done some tiny tests on this at the end of series three, which is advertising on other podcasts. And it sounds so obvious, but all I can say is nothing has worked like advertising on other podcasts. Uh, we were charging remember 50,000 pounds maybe in total for the series um so across 15 episodes and so that's quite a lot of money if you're not taking anything right and so whereas before we were advertising on little podcasts you know that were a few hundred quid here or there we advertised on we crashed which was the biggest business podcast of last year pretty much for economics eat like the economist like really premium podcasts they're fucking expensive. You know, they're like five grand for, I don't know, five episodes or something like that. But at the end of the day, we're getting like a super premium listenership and it really worked, like really worked. And I think the other thing that's interesting, like, and I always think about this stuff in in a in a entrepreneurial way, which is where are the people I want to get? What are they listening to? So that's when suddenly I'm like, right, I really want to get Will Shoe. I really want to get Will Shoe. Will Shoe says he listens to podcasts. What does he probably listen to? If I was Will Shu, I'd probably listen to The Economist. I'd probably listen to Freakonomics. You know, I'd listen to like the big ones. And so, great. 
at the end of the day, if I can advertise on those ones, then I imagine that's where, like, you know, I might catch some of the listeners as well. Sorry, some of the guests that I want as well. So this season, we already know that Freakonomics worked super well for us because we tested everything in isolation. So Freakonomics was the best channel for us by a mile. And so that is a really long-winded way of saying something unbelievably obvious, which is, where do you hear about podcasts you like? It took us so long to realize it was probably on other podcasts. And yes, other podcasts and I guess word of mouth. Have you done anything? I mean, word of mouth, I feel like it's just one of those things, create a great product, people will talk about it. But are there any other things which which are a bit less obvious around generating word of mouth? I'll be honest and say that, you know, word of mouth is this like magical thing that you always hope is going to happen and you always hear happening to other people and doesn't necessarily feel like it's happening for you. And I would say like that's how I feel about it. I don't think there was uh, an insane amount of word of mouth for secret leaders. If you want to advertise on, this is just a technical question. Um, if you want to advertise mm. on, let's say, Freakonomics or The Economist, is that is do you go through some kind of weird sort of ad network or is it have you just kind of gone one-to-one to sort of head of partnerships? So actually this series, the thing that we've done differently as well is we've got an agency who are called Mags Creative. And they've been great really, really great. It's expensive. I'm not going to pretend it's not, you know, they're three grand a month. That's not expensive for PR, but it's just expensive for a podcast PR. But it's worth it because I'm not willing to put in the time. So I'm not willing to put in the time and I'm also not willing to employ and manage anyone. What did you do before you had an agency? We actually put out a competition for an internship in series one or two. I think it was one and then she helped us for two. And she was in Canada and she was great and so nice but the problem that we had was you know it's just scheduling the management of it all it suddenly just became like having an employee this is all i do all day long with my actual job this is what we literally signed up not to do with secret leaders um something else that we've done for example is if you if you know that a podcast has a similar audience and reach then you can do shout out for shout out this week for example we've got a shout out for bruce daisley's eat sleep work repeat he's doing one for us like you can spend money on each other's shows, sure, or you could just all just do a shout out at the beginning to each one. Like, why not? You're not competitors. Most people that I know that listen to podcasts are actually kind of podcast junkies. Like everyone likes to hear about a new podcast. It's one of those mediums that people really do enjoy hearing more about other options for, and they get a sense very quickly, one or two episodes, whether they want to carry on with it. In terms of release cadence, there's people talking about releasing three at once and then doing weekly are there any days that work? I can only speak from my own experience. Like I've, I've been learning and like the point with Secret Leaders was always to do less is more. So 15 episodes a year. That's it. I think there's literally only two strategies that are known to work and anything else doesn't. And that is scarcity. So people waiting around for your series when it drops, it's, it's the same time every single week and it's for a limited run series and when it's done, it's done. And then you get a break and then you get to produce it well and then it comes out again. And then the other one is every single week. So there's you know a business podcast, for example, called 20 Minute VC. He's done two and a half thousand episodes because he's just done it every single week for years. And that is a really successful strategy. It won't, so he's got millions of downloads. Um, but it's millions of downloads split across two and a half thousand episodes. So you only need about a thousand downloads per episode to get to over a million downloads. Whereas for us to get to a million downloads plus, which we have, 
um, across only 80 episodes gives you a whole different idea of, of the volume of listenership on each episode. Anything else in between those two things I don't believe works. What really doesn't work, by the way, is like, you know, I recorded an episode now and I just release it today. And in like three weeks, I'll release another one. And then sort of like four weeks later, like that's literally a failed strategy. It's proven time and again, not to work. Was Heights a side project? Heights was totally intentional. Totally, this is the company I want to build. This is the space. I didn't know about the product. I didn't know what product we were going to make, but I was... I'd started writing a newsletter on brain health and mental performance that goes every Sunday. And again, this, that was almost side projecty in the sense of I want, you know, I was like, I'm not going to become a neuroscientist or a nutritionist. But if I read science papers every week and then rewrite them into a newsletter myself, I will become a good science communicator and I will understand this stuff better. And so, you know, I've been doing that now for almost a year and a half. That makes me a year and a half more informed in the space. There was a fully intentional understanding of how much imposter syndrome I would feel doing a business in brain health and mental wellness unless I knew my shit. And on the basis that I'm like, this is going to be a 10-year company to build at least, I better start today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to stay up to date, we're launching something exciting. You have to be on the newsletter, www.outofhours.org. And if you want to check out the Secret Leaders podcast, search Secret Leaders on any podcast player, or you can check it out at secretleaders.com. If you want to try Heights, Dan's created a special Out of Hours code, which is literally Out of Hours, no capitals, no spaces. And that code will get you £10 off your first quarterly subscription. Read up and see what you think at www.yourheights.com.